I mean, it's all about value to the client. A client comes to us for a, a support contract because they don't have the technical capability or they don't have the capability in-house to do it, but the website is so important to the running of their business. So they need the confidence that should things go wrong, that we can handle it in an appropriate time. Welcome to Happy Porch Radio, the show for agency owners and web professionals who want to grow bigger, better, and more rewarding businesses. Join Barry O'Kane, your host, as he talks to leading experts and top agency owners about the challenges and opportunities that we all face, and hear them share the amazingly valuable lessons they've learned along the way. This is Happy Porch Radio. This is episode two of season one. Welcome back. Season one is all about the long haul. We dig deep into building long-term client relationships, recurring revenue, repeat business, referrals, and more. Everything that's vital to building an agency that not only survives, but grows. In this episode, we dig deep into the practicalities of providing support and maintenance services and learn the powerful lessons from the success of Bristol-based agency Mayfly. I hope you enjoy the interview. Absolutely delighted to have Janov Stabik here with me from Mayfly Support. Hi there. Good morning, Barry. So just to start us off, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and Mayfly. I'm the MD of a company called Mayfly Media based in Bristol. We're a digital agency. We're we're quite technically focused, so we specialise in the provision of websites built predominantly with two content management systems, that's Umbraco and Sitecore. And there's kind of two arms to our business, really. We've split the business in two. One side focuses on on project work, so building a new website from scratch, including the, the user experience and the creative work and then the technical development integration. And then the other side of the business, Mayfly Support, specializes in supporting those websites with different types of models and contracts and billing methods. And I guess we've realized quite early on that managing a client who needs support, the process, the SLAs, the contracts, well, I guess the whole management of the contract is very, very different to the way you would manage a project, hence our kind of dual offering and while we have the Mayfly Support brand. I think that's brilliant. I really like the split between or the way you've differentiated between the project work and the different service offerings you have there. Before we dig into that in a little bit more detail, can you tell us a little bit more about Mayfly, how big you are and how long you've been around for and the kind of clients and work you do? Sure. So we're 15 strong. We're based in Bristol. We do a lot of our work within the third sector, actually. So we've got a lot of charity-based clients or membership organizations, public sector, those type of clients who are great to work with. They're all incredibly nice people and quite visionary as well in, in the kind of things that they want to do. So we've been around for about five years. When we first started, we were very much a tech house. So myself and my old business partner, we, we used to be developers. So we set up an agency to effectively provide outsourced development services to other digital agencies. And then as we've grown, we've gained more direct clients and turned much more into, I guess, a full service offering. So a full service digital agency at the very least. So we can provide yeah, the strategy work, user experience, creative and development integration, and then moving on into support after that point or taking on other people's support contracts. So a client might have had a website built by another agency and we can facilitate the, the support for that too. That's another reason I really wanted to connect with you is I saw that you do a lot of third sector work, which is something that's very close to my heart as well. Is that a conscious decision or did it just kind of happen? It kind of happened, actually. So initially our offering was, was very technical. It was, we are the Umbraco and Sitecore guys. And 
I think through the nature of the referrals that we had for the initial work that we did, the initial agencies that we were working with, a lot of the referrals seemed to be in the third sector. So it's something that we've gravitated towards and yeah, a sector that we love working within. Yeah, much respect for that. I think it's an awesome place to be working. This series of episodes of Happy Porch Radio is all about long-term relationships and building support and the success, a long-term success of sites. So I'm really interested in your Mayfly support service and how you consciously separated that out from the project's work. Can you first of all just talk a bit how that separation happened and why it's that way now? I guess in the early days, two or three years back, our first support contracts came in and we had a single development team. And the way that we resourced the support request was through the team, basically. So we would, if a ticket came in from a client, we would pass it on to the team. And it caused a lot of disruption initially. So we might have a development team work on a project, but all the devs were effectively scheduled on half a day's worth of support per two days, something like that. So when a support ticket came in, it might take them off their project work. So there was a bit of context switching there for the developer. And if they weren't able to complete the task that was assigned to them within the half a day, it would then be passed on to another developer who was booked on to support for the second half of the day. So there was more context switching and knowledge transfer that needed to happen. It was just really disruptive. And the very nature of support contracts is that they're reactive in their nature. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about the different types of support contracts that we offer, but predominantly they're quite reactive. There might be a bug or an issue or a new feature that's required for a site, typically with quite quick turnarounds required. We're very much kind of reacting to a client's needs and they need yeah, a quick turnaround. So it disrupted the projects that were going on and we were finding that effectively the development was taking longer than it should because of the context which it had to go on within the team was too great. So we split it. We, we effectively set up a dedicated support function where we have dedicated account managers, dedicated resources, developers and creatives effectively in that department. Dedicated tooling, so the ticketing system that we use, that clients use to raise tickets with us, is purely used for the support function. And from day one, we saw the benefit and that was a benefit to us and a benefit to the client. We were able to get things out the door, get things finished, within the SLAs that we had defined in the contracts. We were way more productive. We found that we were able to handle sort of, you know, 30% more tickets purely because the team was dedicated to that function as well. So, Wow, there's so much in that that's really powerful. Let's start right from the beginning. So that problem you described is something you see so often in agencies and people building websites, the conflict between juggling reactive support things where you can't necessarily control, you know, there's no schedule and actually having to schedule in the meteor projects or larger tasks. Did you struggle through that for a while and try other different solutions, or did you just immediately go, okay, we need to split this out? No, we did. We did struggle with it for a while, actually. We tried different methods of resourcing. So again, for argument's sake, say we had five or six developers on, in the development team. We would yeah, allocate, say, half a day of support per developer, and then that would switch throughout the day or we then put a developer on support for say two days a week to give them more time to be able to complete tasks so effectively we tried different methods of resourcing probably for a good 18 months I'd have thought and it was quite a bold leap actually to move towards a a dedicated function because we needed to add additional resource into the team and tooling and so we invested quite a bit in setting up the function but yeah it paid dividends straight away. And did you feel that that was a risk as well? I mean, because obviously you're, you're investing time and money and, and resources into that. How confident were you that you would see that immediate benefit? Absolutely. At the time, it felt like a risk. We're five years old. We went from two of us to four of us within 18 months and then from four to eight and eight to 15. And as a small company grows, there's growing pains along the way and you need to recruit managers and put processes in place and automation tools and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of change going on in, within the business at the same time. And this was another change. So 
absolutely felt like a risk. But it felt like the right risk. It was measured. It made sense. Quite clearly, it made sense before we did it. But yeah, I think any decision that we make feels a little bit risky. But this was probably one of the, I'd say, the least risky ones that, that we took at that time. And you're right, the sort of dealing with a change like that while you're also at the same time growing the agency and juggling all the other balls as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah, we don't regret it. It was, it was a good move to make. So how did the transition actually happen? Did you spend a little bit of time sort of positioning everything and speaking to existing clients or did you just have a sudden cutoff? Or how did that transition actually transpire? I think the first challenge to solve actually was an internal one. So support work is very different from project work and it suits very different types of people, actually. Some developers get a great sense of achievement from working on a project for three months and, and seeing that project go live and, and other developers get a great sense of achievement from working on many smaller tasks across many clients so the first challenge was to find the right team to be able to do it and to find a team that was satisfied in the kind of work that, that came through the support department unfortunately we had developers in the team who kind of thrived on on that kind of work so yeah that seemed like a big problem to solve at the time but actually when we when we opened up to the team we found the answer to that quite quickly one of the second changes was tooling so we were on a project management system at the time called podio that we used for all of our kind of client-based communication ticketing documentation all this kind of stuff and we felt at the time that that wasn't really working for us so we wanted effectively the developers and the creative just working from one system which was Jira that wasn't client facing so that it was only the account managers that were speaking to the clients and the devs could just crack on with their work so we moved to the Atlassian suite of tools so Jira and Confluence and that kind of thing and then put Zendesk ticketing system in front of that that the account managers and the clients use to simplify their workflow so yeah the first thing we did was put the team in place the second thing we did was to implement the tooling and that was really the only thing that the client saw but they moved to a more simple communication tool which was Zendesk I mean they saw the benefit of it they saw that we were getting things out the door quicker and on time but the only real change that they probably saw was was the change in the ticketing system so you didn't actually have to juggle much you know repositioning or pushback or challenges from any of the existing clients you had not really. I think one of the changes that we made at the time was probably to redefine our SLAs in our contracts as well. So typically we have like a three level SLA, so a priority one, priority two, priority three, and different turnaround times associated to those different priorities, which we're able to build into the ticketing system quite well. So we put a lot of work in actually defining what those priorities meant. So if a client was to raise a priority one ticket, a priority one ticket meant the website was down or there was a, a yellow screen of death in, in the .NET world or there was a broken piece of functionality on a business critical piece of function on the, on the website. So if it was a charity, that, that perhaps the donations were down or the event registration feature wasn't working. And we did the same amount of work with the level twos and level threes. And again, that streamlined us again. I think historically, we used to rush to fix all issues with equal priority and we'd be prioritizing on the fly. But actually, in redefining our SLAs and how the priorities within those SLAs worked, that again allowed us to work more productively. And the clients saw the benefit too. They were happy with waiting three days for a level two because they knew that if they had a level one that, <laughs> that came in, that it would be jumped on within two hours. So yeah, redefining those SLAs was another big change. Yeah, and that process must have been quite involved as well. For example, very often if you ask a client what's the priority on, on all this stuff, they'll say everything's top priority one. Do you provide guidance or how does that work? Absolutely. So historically, everything was a priority one. And like I say, we used to prioritize on the fly and it wasn't feasible. So what we did was rewrote our contracts 
defined very explicitly what a level one, level two, level three was and worked with them to define what could go into a level one. So a level one was absolutely a critical issue, but nothing more than that. So it was a website was down or, you know, a key business critical piece of functionality was broken. Level twos are generally something might be broken. So there is a function broken on the website, but it's not business critical. So a newsletter sign up form might not be working or Google Maps isn't sharing or something like that. And then level three is typically styling issues or content or perhaps a new feature that they require actually there's something that's coming to the backlog so so some additional development will go into a level three it's interesting that that definition is very clearly on it's not technical it's not the difficulty to solve or like whether it's in hosting or in front end or something it's very clearly on the impact on the client and so they can clearly understand how to prioritize that Absolutely. That's key. I mean, it's all about value to the client. A client comes to us for a a support contract because they don't have the technical capability or they don't have the capability in-house to do it, but the website is so important to the running of their business. So they need the confidence that should things go wrong, that we can handle it in an appropriate time. So it needs to be geared towards their requirements. Absolutely. But just to step quickly back to something else you talked about, and the different type of personalities or, or people that are enjoy or are able to really add value to a support environment. Did you actually consciously recruit more support engineers and creative people? No, we split the existing resource within the team, actually. We already had the resource internally. So we defined the offering and then went to the existing team and said, okay, this is how we're splitting the business. Effectively, who's interested? We had a few people put their hand up, which was great. You know, the guys in that team absolutely thrive on that work. You get exposed to a lot of other stuff, more so perhaps, I think, than when you were working on a project. So you can learn a lot. You might be looking at other people's work more frequently if we've taken the contract on from a previous agency. So you're learning things from other people you're problem solving you're always problem solving i think there's an immense amount of satisfaction in the client raising an issue they have absolutely no understanding about <laughs> where that issue has come from so it's down to you know the team to investigate and get to the bottom of why it's not working then propose a solution that's acceptable within the client's budget and time frames so there's not always what you know one answer to, to fixing these problems you know it's down to the team to figure out which which the most appropriate solution is and then to implement it and for it to go through a qa process again within an acceptable amount of time that's right for the client yeah and you're right that feedback loop to seeing the impact of work or fixes that you do is much shorter when you're dealing with as you say the reactive stuff that's happening that sort of turns around quite quickly so that makes a lot of sense there is a real sense of achievement there if that's the thing that works with you i think that's the point i think that the guys that are more suited to support work that excites them it's that immediate sense of achievement it's the problem solving because they might be you know problem solving five or six things a day so they're getting quite quick feedback and kicks out of the work that they're doing i'm guessing that a lot of your clients that we that you provide the support service to you also do projects for and for those clients, do you have like a process to hand over between support and projects? Is there How do the two groups talk? We have quite a defined process map, actually. It's quite large that kind of covers all of this stuff down to, yeah, all of the processes and deliverables. So basically, the when a project's finished, it will launch and go into a warranty period, typically warranty period between five days and, and 30 days. Um, during that period, any bugs can be raised that are in reference to the specification that we've built. So client has five to 30 days to raise any issues against the spec. Um, when a project goes into warranty, effectively gets handed over to the support team. Facilitating a warranty period is the same as facilitating a support contract from a, a business operating model. So at that point, upon launch, there is a handover. And again, we're quite wedded to the Atlassian suites. So the 
senior developer who has been responsible for the project, the senior account manager as well has been responsible for the projects and, and a senior creative will sit down with the support team and run through any documentation that we've produced. So specifications, wireframes, prototypes, that kind of thing. Any bugs that had been raised, say, through UAT and where there might be any risks in the project. And also there'd be a, an end of project retrospective that happens and the support team would be in on that retrospective as well just so that they can hear you know, what went well, what didn't go so well, what might we do better next time, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, so that they're, they're fully briefed on, on taking on that job. So even though each team has a very clear sort of responsibility, there's also a really close knitting and communication. Yeah, and they sit right next to each other as well. So, you know, there's 15 of us. We've got a, I think, 120 metres squared open plan office. So they're separate teams, but they're sat on the next table. So it's not like they're, they're sat on another floor and, and not party to the conversation and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a very close team. And that leads me back to the value for the client that we touched on earlier, because one of the issues I think that happens quite often is you get a site built or a project done and it's kind of done in isolation without taking into consideration you know, the longer term success from the client's point of view of the site. But if you have these teams working together and there's, sort of, there's a commitment to providing an ongoing service even above and beyond the warranty period, presumably that affects you know, the whole project process as well as the support? Yes. So it depends on the project. And we run different types of support contracts as well with very different models and totally differently between different clients. So we typically offer three different types of support contracts. So the first type of support contract is, is maintenance. It's like servicing your car. It's we will do a load of stuff on a regular basis to keep the website in good health. And that might be server maintenance, so applying patches and updates from Microsoft. It could be CMS maintenance. There's a few tasks that you should do regularly within an Umbraca or a, or a Sitecore platform just to keep them efficient, deleting temporary files, deleting logs, clearing out recycle bins, rebuilding database indexes, all, all this kind of stuff that they don't necessarily progress the website any further, but they, they keep it in good shape and reduce the likelihood that the website might go down. So that type of contract, we, we define the services in, in the contract schedule and we just go and do them. But the client doesn't necessarily get any additional time to do anything else with. It's purely regular maintenance and, and they don't see us doing it. They don't get any feedback from it. it it just happens. And the second type of uh, support contract is more aligned to the conversation that we've had so far in this interview, which is more of a retained relationship. So typically a client would buy some time from us. We have support contracts ranging from between one to 10 days uh, of time a month. Client buys the time and then using the ticketing system, they, they book in work from us on a, on a monthly basis. That work might be bugs or issues or new features that they require. And the client uses up their time and then, and then next month they get a new time allocation. And then the third type of support contract is more strategic. So a client would again buy some time from us, but we don't a certain piece of intellectual property on the website. So we might be responsible for increasing conversions or engagement or improving the user experience in certain areas. So we would use that time without the client requesting things from us to try and improve certain KPIs on the website. So it's much more of a proactive, strategic support contract. So the type of contract that we offer, the type of contract that the client requires typically falls into one of those three categories or a combination of them. So if somebody's got a time-based retained relationship, they'll probably have the maintenance agreement in place too. And other clients might have a technical team. So once we once we launch the website, they want to host it and manage it internally because they have a developer in-house. But they're then looking for the ongoing strategic support to help move their website forward. So it varies very much, pretty much dependent on the capabilities of, of the clients. 
That's brilliant. And I, I love that you're using the same terminology that I've always categorized those into the maintenance, um, reactive and proactive or strategic. But I'm really interested in, so reactive, we've talked a lot about already, but one thing we haven't touched on yet is how do you manage client expectations in terms of, you know, we've used all your time this month, you know, do you have that communication process? Absolutely. So if it's a time-based kind of reactive relationship, then we have to maintain incredibly accurate timesheets internally. So we will feed back timesheets typically on a weekly basis. So we'll do a weekly status call with a client. We'll have a chat about any tickets that are currently open, the status of those tickets, when they're likely to be deployed and or ready for client review, that kind of thing. And at that point, we'd be sending over timesheets of any work that have been completed previously. And then towards the end of the month, one of the account managers would be saying, okay, so you've still got two days left to use before the end of the month, just a reminder, so you can kind of try and schedule some work in and get the most value out of your contract. And do you have rollovers and queries around what can I do with the time that's left? We do, but only as a percentage of the previous month. It was probably a mistake, I think, that we made in the early days where where we said, yeah, yeah, of course, you've bought the time, you can you can roll the time over. And we found that, I think we had one support contract and they the client had, for argument's sake, a day a month and eight months in they hadn't used any time and in month eight they said we've got eight days to spend can you start tomorrow because we need this really big thing done you can imagine again i'm talking about the impact on the on the resourcing the development team we weren't able to plan for that we weren't able to keep this eight days worth of resource <laughs> within the team to be used at a drop of a hat and then you multiply that by the number of support clients that you're able to support and you just not we weren't able to deliver on that so if when we do offer rollovers it's it might be a percentage of of the current month and you can only roll it over for one month so if you have 10 days you might be able to roll over two days into the next month so next month you'd have 12 days it allows us to deliver on the resourcing side of it basically so we we can plan and resource knowing the capacity that we have to fulfill within the following month rolling over too much we need a development team of of 40 on on the off chance that that everybody used up all their time the next month if, if we didn't do that yeah and so that's just about realistically managing what you can deliver which is important for the client's point of view as well, so that you're still there. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the next level or category of stuff you talked about, the proactive, the strategic level stuff, is that an internal differentiation or do you describe it like that to clients as well? Yeah, we describe it like that to clients. And again, it can be a combination of a client might have the reactive time as well, but then they've said, okay, a, a day a month, can you do some user experience work? for us perhaps do a review of each section of the website each month and come up with some recommendations that might improve conversions within within that section so we'd sit down and put together a plan recommend it to the client and then they might use some of their reactive time to implement some of the suggestions that we're making the other thing you mentioned was owning part of the site or the ip what do you mean by owning do you mean actually owning or just taking responsibility for guiding Probably a bit of both. So we might be tasked to, say, increase donations for a client. So we would say, okay, let's have this amount of time and this amount of time we're going to do a user experience review. We might implement a little bit of A-B testing or some personalization tool and plan a strategy around that. It's incredibly powerful. It requires a lot of measurement up front before you do the strategy work and planning and implementation and and iteration. So if you you implement some A-B testing or some personalization and it doesn't work, you need to be able to fail fast and loop back around and, and try something else. And I can see how incredibly powerful that is, both as a business service offering for yourself, but also... So that's where the real value comes from the client's point of view because you're using expertise to help increase or like their conversion or grow their business in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And typically these kind of arrangements, they're baked in from the start of a project. 
basically. So if you want to increase conversions, you need to know how many conversions the client was getting before you did any work. You need to benchmark it. You need to measure it against something. So even before we would start the project, we'd be identifying the goals that the client needed to improve and then getting measurement data from the client on day one over different time periods, monthly, quarterly, annually, campaign-based, making sure that we're measuring them, progressing with a design process. So that's a user experience and a creative design process that was optimized towards increasing those conversions. But then even after launch, even when you launch, you need to benchmark. You might have released a new website and the very act of releasing that website will impact the conversions that you are measuring. So you need to be able to measure that. So you have a second benchmark to measure against when you start to do the ongoing strategic work. And then you need to put something into place and then you need to measure that and then you need to see the impact that that had and, and then iterate. So the process starts very, very early on and typically at the start of a, of a new website development project when we're understanding that they're interested in, in certain conversions. We'll, we'll be planning from, from day one to be doing that strategic work perhaps six, seven, eight months down the line as well. In order to benchmark it and see and measure the changes, the impact of changes over time? Absolutely, yeah. And so all of this naturally leads you to long-term relationships with your clients. So do you start the conversation like a sales or an inquiry conversation? Do you start with the concept that you want to build a long-term relationship you know, in order to be able to deliver that because you can't do that in a, that kind of a service? And even the reactive and maintenance services, you know, running them for a month or two isn't really the point. It's the requirements for the long-term. Absolutely. We're all about ongoing relationships than projects. We all enjoy what we do very much and we're all incredibly nice people and, and a great and, and friendly team and we like working with good clients. And from a business development perspective, you can put a lot of effort and work into, into winning a new client and you might win one in five. So it's incredibly costly. From a business perspective, it makes sense. It's, it's you keep your current clients happy. You're there for them and you support and you respond to them as, as they need to. You've already won that client so you don't have to go through the effort of, of winning them again. So from a business perspective, it makes sense. And you build up good, strong relationships with your support clients. I'm very good friends with a lot of our clients because we've been working with them for so long. We have one support client that we've been working with for five years since, since day one, pretty much. So we're always, always, always interested in the long-term relationship. And that's, I guess, where, yeah, like you say, the support model fits in really nicely. And as you say, that's really powerful, both in terms of getting business success, but also the enjoyment and the, avoiding the stress of less feast and famine and that kind of thing. But also it must be, to come back again to talking about value, like focusing on what the client needs are and the value for the client, it must be really important to focus on that because otherwise they don't, you can't build that level of trust in the long-term relationships. Yes, and we see it quite often when, say, we take on support contracts for websites, I guess, that have been built elsewhere. T typically, with the CMSs that we support, there are a couple of right ways and a lot of wrong ways to build these sites. To understand how to do it the right way, you need to be trained or certified in these CMSs and typically be a partner. And you can tell, when if we get a support contract through the door and it's been built by a partner, we do an initial risk assessment on it, we do a health check of the site, and we go, yeah, we can take this on, absolutely. It's very easy for us to estimate how long it's going to take. Those that have been built the wrong way, built on a framework of sand and held together by a piece of string, they can be incredibly risky actually for us to support because we just don't know actually if we can deliver on the client's requirements within the SLA because it's just 
it would take us a month to actually understand the code to do the risk assessment and the client has had the time for us to pay to do that. So from their perspective, they've been a lot of the time burnt before. So they might be coming into a support relationship with us feeling quite nervous because they've had a site that's not been built very well and it's always falling down and they don't know where to turn next. So for us, it's very much about, yeah, we need to understand the risk that's involved and be honest with them about, okay, for us to be able to support this, this is actually a big job. You might need three or four days a month, actually, just to keep this thing ticking over. So to be honest with them at that point in time and say, yes, we can take that support and try, but you might be better almost rebuilding certain elements of the site. And that open and frank conversation, I think the clients appreciate because, again, they might be coming from a situation where they might, typically with these kinds of sites where they're, they're laden with issues, where they might have had a failed relationship that's been going on with a previous agency for 18 months and they didn't know where to turn. So our job in that instance is, is to put their mind at ease and, and be honest with them. And that's the only way to build that lot sort of long-term trust. Okay, so there's two other things I'd like to touch on quickly before we wind down. One of them is that you mentioned that, I think you said 30% more tickets or 30% quicker turnaround when you split out the support. Obviously, you're measuring that, but what other things do you measure to try and make sure that that support service is delivering and consistently being valuable? That's probably one of the key measures. The other is that we're getting jobs out on time to time. So... When a ticket comes in, we do an initial assessment and an estimate that we send back to the client. So this job will take five hours of development, um, two hours of UAT, 45 minutes of client services, an hour's worth of deployment, etc. Client then signs that off and says, yeah, happy for, for you to do that work. So one of the key measures is that we're, we're getting those jobs out the door in the time that we estimate effectively. And that just illustrates to us that we've still got our finger in the pulse in, in terms of how long it takes to estimate these jobs. It allows us to plan things accordingly because if we can't estimate right and all the jobs take longer than we originally anticipate, that impacts the next job that's booked in for that day. So if we estimate something at an hour and it takes us two, we've got an hour less to spend on the next job that we're meant to do that day. So measuring on time, two time, A, keeps us productive, but B, allows us to keep our clients happy because we can do the number of jobs that have been allocated for that day without overrunning. Just one last question. What would be the one piece of advice you would give to any web professional who's struggling with that original challenge you had? where they're fighting the scheduling and the resourcing issues of jumping between context switching between the support challenges and also needing to keep larger projects running to time and to budget? Two things, two very clear things. And I've been asked this question a lot, actually. The two biggest changes that we made in our business that had the biggest impact was one, separating the support from the project work. It's different work. Support work is reactive if you're trying to facilitate it within the same team you're impacting all different kinds of things (laughs) there's context switching left right and center knowledge transfers more frequently to happen separate them out straight away you see the benefit from day one and the second thing is the digital industry seems to have moved towards a model of using what are called producers which are effectively a mix of account managers and project managers we tried it and we see it in other agencies and we just don't believe it works separating out your account management your client services function from your project management function we saw immediate benefit from it you need your client services function to be speaking to the client to be the client's liaison within the company to be understanding their issues to be writing the briefs to be helping with invoicing to be chatting with them on a regular basis they haven't got the time to be making sure the things delivered a project manager should be internally working with the development team to get the jobs out of the door on time helping with some solutions perhaps helping with some additional resourcing that, that might be required if you mix those two roles into one and into the role of a producer you become a jack of all trades you're spending half of your time speaking to the client half the time speaking to the internal team and not really delivering on 
either. And I think, yeah, separating client services from, from project management is absolutely key. And finally, anybody listening who wants to reach out to yourself or to find out more about Mayfly, where do they go? Two websites. So our project function is www.mayflymedia.co.uk and you'll see again our specialism in third sector in a, a Bracco and site core. And then if you're interested in our support function, it's just mayfly.support, type mayfly.support into a browser and, and you should hit our support function. And, and our Twitter handle is just at mayflymedia. Outstanding. I'll put all of those links and the Twitter handle into the show notes for this episode at happyporch.com slash podcast. Thanks again so much for joining me. I think that's amazing value from your time there. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. It's been great speaking to you. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for listening to Season 1 of Happy Porch Radio. If you like what you've heard so far, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps the show keep going. And don't forget to visit happyporchradio.com for all the links and notes from every show. 